0: Brothers and sisters in Christ and to reminisce and to unite our hearts around a sacrifice that was made for us. It's a somber time. It's by intention because we know that Sunday, as we always say, Sunday is coming that that expression of joy and celebration and worship and freedom and all that we have because Christ, His life didn't end on the night that we call Good Friday. But until we get to that point, it's important for us just to take a moment, let our hearts go through some of the difficulty, let our minds be taken to a place of his suffering because it unites us uh, with all that he's done for us, it draws us closer to our Savior to be brought into these times and these memories. And we know how this night ended, we know that from the portrayals that we've already seen on screen and, and, and the, the audio sounds that we've heard that the night ended in betrayal, that we witnessed cowardice, that we have seen beating and suffering, that bloodshed took place, all the sorrow and, and all the death. But we know, as we've already heard tonight, that also came that immense forgiveness that only Jesus, because of that sacrifice, can bring. We know why the night be, it had to happen the way it did we know why the night had to end the way it did but the night didn't begin that way the night began especially with jesus followers it began as an opportunity to come around a very familiar table jesus sent his disciples out to gather the elements of the Seder, or the order the dinner that they would share together and jesus greatly desired to have this dinner with his fellow um, Hebrew Jewish brothers to be around the table to do a tradition that they had done every year of their life. And and you can imagine Jesus' anticipation, his excitement to be able to come together knowing that, yes, this is the final time he will do this until he meets them in glory. But he gets to spell out what it was all for. He gets to see their eyes open and their minds blown This tradition that they'd followed through faithfully all these years, now the meaning would come to life right before their eyes. The elements were around the table much as they always had been, the carpus or what we would call the parsley, was there to represent life, and so the Jews would see this representation of life, and they would have this bowl of salty water, and they would dip this parsley in the salty water to say that our lives have been saturated by tears. Of course, reminiscing the over 400 years that they were in slavery to Egyptians. He said, we've known sorrow, we've known heartache, we've shed our tears, and so our lives have been saturated and soaked in them. You're familiar with matzah bread, that, that flat, and then the holes poked all through it, and the lines along the bread and everything. I had some today, it was lovely. Especially when I needed a little snack at the moment. It was there on the table to represent perfection, because... The leaven in bread that, that is, that rises as we bake our bread was the representation to the Hebrews of sin. And so they said this, this can't be a part of our celebration. God said you remove every aspect of leaven from the house. You, you, you clean the house top to bottom. You make sure it's not around anywhere. And so in the baking of that bread, it would make sure that all that leaven was removed and the holes were poked in it to make sure that not any of it would escape and not, there would be no rise in the bread whatsoever. Representing the sinlessness that God requires of his people. Maror, or what we would know as, uh, represented today as horseradish. Very strong smell, a very offensive one if you take it in the massive doses. And, and that would represent, of course we would expect, it would represent bitterness. You think back to a life of slavery, it's even what we would equate slavery to Today. It's a very bitter experience, nothing in it to be enjoyed, nothing in it to be thankful for in that sense. It is in and of itself a very bitter experience and they would take that matzah bread and they would scoop that, that horseradish in and get a kind of a big amount of it and just eat it and let it do to its, their sinuses, all that horseradish will do. The hiroset was a mixture of, of apple and walnut. I heard some people looking out over our table out there and trying to decide and figure out, guess what the pasty stuff was, the dark stuff. I'm a little colorblind, so I don't even know what color it is, but I would imagine it's like a reddish or a brown paste out there. And that would, we, we also represented it with the crushed walnuts and the sliced apples, and that was what the mixture was to remind them, yes, of the, the mortar of all the bricks that they made in Egypt. All of the years of toil and and blood, sweat, and tears that went into that harsh uh, work that they put in as slaves. But there was a sweetness to the mixture that would let them know or look back on the time that God promised them deliverance and he came through. And so even in the midst of the bitterness, there is a sweet savor of something that we look forward to a rescue that the Lord would send. The instruction of this was, Given to Moses in Exodus six, he, he said, say to these things to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I'll deliver you from slavery to them. And I'll remind you with an outstretched arm, I'll redeem you. I'm sorry, with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, I'll take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Well, like any great meal, you have different kinds of foods and things, but you also have great drink present. You might have seen as you were coming in that there were five glasses out there filled with the juice. And these five cups would be out amongst the table, each having their own unique place or, or representation in the meal The first one grabbed would be the cup of sanctification as they remembered the words of God that I will bring you out. This is what God does is he calls a people to himself uniquely, we would call it being holy, being sanctified. I find it interesting too that Jesus, as he said these things to the disciples, he said, go get the meal and go get it prepared and everything. And they come around the table. No doubt he holds this glass and he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. See, the emphasis is you are my called out ones. You are my fellowship. You are my family. God will call a people out to himself. Taking the cup that would remind them of the deliverance of God, the very words of the promise of God that I will deliver you. Well, how did God deliver the people of Israel from Egypt? He sent nasty plagues, one after the other, after the other. Each one wearing down Pharaoh and his people and his leaders and everybody and just saying, how long can we hang on to these people we're paying for it. And yet their hearts would be hardened. Pharaoh's heart would be rehardened and he would change his mind. He says, no, I didn't mean I'd let you go. I still need you around here. So I forget, well, you know, all about locusts and flies and all these kinds of things. I'm moving on from that. At the dinner, they will take their finger and they'll dip it in that cup and they of deliverance and they will drop a drop on the plate for every one of the plagues that God sent to the Egyptians for the purpose of freeing his people. And of course we know that those plagues culminated in the sending of the angel of death that God said that there will be an angel that passes over every household in the land and those that do not have the blood of a perfect spotless lamb A perfect sacrifice if they don't have that blood placed on the doorposts of their home. And so many have pointed out that just the image of that and just the placing of that blood in those three locations around the door would symbolize or outline the cross that was to come. This is where they get the word Passover. As the angel of death would pass over the land, those that had the blood placed on their doorposts, their children were safe. But those that didn't, their firstborn, lost their lives. And you can imagine the great cry and the parental wailing that came from the land as many realized that their loved ones had been taken from them. This, of course, was the final straw that broke the camel's back and send the people away. We can't stand their sight anymore. Let them get out of our sight. Go worship your God. We can't take any more of this punishment. All of these things represented in the traditional uh, elements of the Seder meal. So Jesus is having this meal with his followers. And taking each step piece by piece, and the Hebrew eyes and ears and experiences are seeing the reality and the fulfillment of this playing out before their very eyes. Of course, their plates were full of representations of the bitterness of slavery, but Jesus wasn't satisfied to just point back to a slavery to Egyptians. It seems a little bit as though the, maybe not a little bit, but it seems quite a bit, that the Hebrew experience of Seder goes back to a period of time where physically we were in captivity to another physical nation and that the experience of those 430 years was nothing but bitterness until God came and delivered us and so we can point back to a time on a calendar and that the whole experience, the whole meal just goes back that far. But did God not prepare all of this to help us see that there was a deeper slavery that we were all struggling with? that we were all in bondage to, the slavery of our own sin? You saw pieces of this verse already tonight, but Isaiah 53, 5, the whole, the whole chapter of Isaiah 53 is this clearly messianic prophecy. Even though it was so far before Jesus of Nazareth arrived on the scene, it's so clear from Isaiah 53 in hindsight as we as we see it in the rearview mirror that it pointed to all that Jesus would experience and who it would be for. That this Messiah wouldn't come and just establish a political conquering or, or conquering the nations around them, but would conquer the hearts of man as he paid for sin. This is what Isaiah 53.5 says. But he was pierced. Picture those holes. That are in that bread and the holes that, that is the, the translation of pierce. He was pierced. He was had holes punctured for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, or otherwise translated with his stripes, we are healed. And now we see this matzah bread. We see this unleavened bread laying on a table in front of us representing the sinlessness. And we see that it's designed as such, though probably not intentionally on the part of the Hebrew practitioner. But it's designed with all these little holes poked in it, as we said earlier, to prevent it from rising at all. Well, we just thought it was a practical concern. We put holes in it. And yet Isaiah 53, 5 says that he was punctured. For our transgressions, his, his stripes are what heals us. All the bitters that are represented on the table before us. We have this horseradish, this very extreme uh, bitter element that is, that is uh, scooped up by the, by the dragging of this unleavened bread. Could we not see that Jesus' sinless life was dragged through the bitterness of our sin? There's an interesting thing that happens a little bit later in the meal, too. It's called the matzah and it's where the three elements of unleavened bread are placed in these pouches. It's one um, complete, I'm going to call it a napkin linen kind of thing, and it has three separate pockets. And it's there to represent unity, which we'll talk about in a second. But but the um, the three different elements, the bread does not touch one another. In fact, the first and the third pouch are never touched in the process after they're placed in there. The middle piece of matzah, though, is removed. As I said, this cloth represents unity, though rabbis really disagree on what is the unity for. They still haven't come to an absolute conclusion that all Jews adhered to. Some would say, well, it's a unity of the patriarchs. We have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so all three of those come together in God's plan. It would make what's going to happen with the middle piece of bread a little bit strange in its interpretation. Others would say, well, it's a unification of worship. We have the high priests, we have the the Levites, we have the people of Israel all coming together and worshiping the one God. And so it's a unity that way. And again, still doesn't explain the fact that at some point they remove that middle piece of bread and break it. If it's representing one of the patriarchs, why would they break that one? If it's representing the unity of those three groups, why would they break that one? That broken bread is then put uh, in in a different uh, in a different linen. This is what Jesus said when he was sitting with his disciples around this table. He says, uh, as he took the bread, he had given thanks and he broke it. No doubt, coming to this point where he removes the middle bread and snap breaks it. And what does he say? You know it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Every time you do this from here on out, I want you to remember me. That broken bread, still done today, is placed in a afikomen. That's the name of this linen. I want credit for pronouncing it correctly. Simply means to come later. It's broken and it's taken and it's put in this linen and it's wrapped and it's hidden and kind of the cool element, like we would kind of do with Easter eggs and that sort of stuff, it's hidden while the kids are out of the room and then they're told, go and find the Afi Komen. And the kids run and they look all around the place and everything and the one who finds it takes it to Father and Father rewards them for their find, giving them maybe, you know, five dollars in cash, a little candy or something like that, rewards their find. I couldn't help but to think of Jesus' words, When he said this in Matthew 18, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Is he referring to the eager anticipation, the diligent searching of looking for the one who's been broken, presenting him to the father? As I said, there were cups on the table. And we've talked about a couple of them, but also there was a cup of redemption because God had promised them that I will redeem you. But how would he redeem them? He would redeem them by the blood of the lamb. So after supper, Jesus takes the cup. And what does he say? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. They knew there was a covenant already between them and God. And they also knew that this covenant wasn't really working out so well from the human perspective. God had given them the law written on tablets and said, now obey this. Be good boys and girls. If you do this perfectly, you'll be my people. Okay, fine. We'll sign up for that. They all consented. We'll be your people and failed miserably. God had used the law to show them this is my character. This is who I am. This is all I will accept is is spotless perfection and you will not be able to attain it. So sacrifices and festivals and other things were put in place to show as a a symbol of faith. I believe that God uh, loves me and that I am his child. But all of those things were they were coming up short obeying perfectly the law that God had written on tablets of stone. Welcome news came from the prophet Jeremiah who said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. God, God is saying there is a new covenant coming. You could not earn my favor. You could not do this perfectly. So I will take my perfection and place it in you. It will be your identity in faith. My son will, will carry out the perfection that I require since you couldn't do it. He will, he will live it out right before your eyes perfectly and he will sacrifice because blood is required for the forgiveness of sins. He will sacrifice his perfect life and carry the sins that you committed before me. And Jesus is with it around the table with his disciples and he's saying to them, what you've been waiting for has come. The, the new covenant, the one that we've long waited for, the relief, the, the release of the burden that, that it's not going to be up to me. As we just heard in that song, thank the Lord that it wasn't up to me because I would fail in the first minute. What you've been waiting for has come. So then they would take the cup of praise and restoration. Why? Because God says, I'll take you as my people. What a thing to celebrate. And the Jews will often sing a song that tells them that maybe we'll be doing this and sharing this cup together next year in Jerusalem. And then Jesus comes and changes everything and fulfills the new covenant and makes us all able to join from, from Jew, Gentile, from uh, church previous to church future to church current. All these people will come together and we sing, uh, according to the prophecy given to us, that maybe next year we will share this together in New Jerusalem. The cup of praise and restoration would be at the end of this traditional Seder meal. But there's a cup off to the side. There's a cup that no one's taken, no one's drank from, no one's talked about or anything because it's Elijah's cup. It's the one that waits for the prophet to come and announce the arrival of Messiah. And this practice went away for a little while and it's it's uh, resumed in the traditional Seder meal. And and Elijah's cup was there because they said, well, maybe, perhaps, we don't know when, but maybe he's going to come because prophecy said that Elijah would come and announce his arrival. Maybe he'll come tonight. And it, it was a way of representing that we keep hope out that the Messiah was coming. And, and what does Jesus say? John the Baptist has come and he's proclaiming. He points to Jesus when Jesus walks on the scene and he says, behold him right there. Look at him. The lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus says to those that are listening, He says, if you can accept it, John the Baptist is Elijah. He's been announced. The Messiah has come. What we've long waited for has finally arrived. Tonight we are sharing emotions ranging from sadness, why did it have to be disgust that they would do that to him? Anger that it was even uh, something that we would have to witness that Jesus would even have to experience that nobody did anything to stop it. Shame because we know he's carrying our sins to the cross. We have all of those emotions that would represent the bitterness at the table. Yet we know that God's deliverance came. The sweetness of our gratitude, the sweetness of our praise, we can enter into as well because we know that he came and rescued us when we couldn't rescue ourselves. We've examined God's provided lamb and we found him to be perfect. We found him to be spotless and he is beautiful. All of this fulfillment, all of this amazing imagery, all of this history was for you. It was for me. I know we say that. Billions of people, and he knows your name. Billions of people, he knows your sin. Billions of people, he knows your weakness. And he came and he fulfilled all of that to offer this gift to you. Everything that he experienced that night every wound, every puncture, even his very last breath was a gift of love for you. And we're going to sing about that right now. I'm going to ask you, please, to stand as the worship team comes and leads us.